a message series called Gospel for Heathens. The gospel is for heathens. And we are looking at Galatians, the book of Galatians. This is part three. I hope you're enjoying this series. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And today we're talking about probably the most important chapter in the New Testament. I don't say that lightly. I say that seriously. This chapter, Galatians 3 and 4, these two chapters, mostly three, but some of four, are probably the most important chapters that you will ever read in the New Testament because these chapters teach you how, listen to this, to read the Old Testament. This chapter in Galatians 3 teaches you how to read the rest of the Bible. It's wonderful. So you can skip the whole Old Testament and just read Galatians 3. It's like the cliff notes. How many love cliff notes? Yeah, spark notes, whatever they are now. And we're talking about gospel formation. Somebody say gospel formation. And what I mean by that is how are we going to be formed into the people God wants us to be? Now, you'll notice also that I'm going to be doing some teaching today. I've got my handy-dandy whiteboard out today. How many are excited about the whiteboard message? Bringing you right back to 11th grade. Come on, somebody. No passing notes. This great, um, this great whiteboard is, is, is actually kind of multi, uh, multi-surface because watch what happens. Uh, I'm going to be doing this throughout the message, but you can just flip it right over. And get a message right there. Oh, where did that come from? How many know that's a word from the Lord right there? <laughs> All right. Amen. As true as it is, I need to erase it. 2717 Patriots. 2717 Patriots. That's the score. You don't need to watch it. But I know you're going to. All right. Take out your bulletin. In the bulletin is a note page. We want you to take notes today. I'm serious. If you've never taken notes, let this be the first time you take notes. You do not want to leave here today without these notes. And I I really do mean that. We are going to unpack a lot of great things from Galatians chapter 3. And then you're going to need the back of your notes in just a moment. All right. So let me just give you some, some context again. Kind of remind you where we are in Galatians. Paul writes this letter. We call it the book of Galatians. It's actually a letter to a church in Galatia. This is a first century church in what we now know as Turkey. And he writes this letter to Christian churches in the first century who had been, who had had an encounter with Christ, who had come to Jesus. And then ultimately what happened was Paul left them, went to start other churches in other cities. And as went after Paul left, false teachers, we call them the Judaizers, they came into the church in the first century and they started to tell people that, you know, Jesus is cool, you should believe in Jesus, that's great, but you also need to go now back to the Old Testament, you need to do all those Old Testament laws, you need to do all the things that God says in the Old Testament because that's the way you get accepted by God. Here, look at it, and they actually opened two passages of the Old Testament and says, see, you need to circumcise your sons on the eighth day, you need to fast on these days, you need to celebrate these feast days, you need to do all these things, and then God will really bless you. And what was happening was they were making a horrible, horrible mistake, and they were believing that the work of God in us, the work of God in them, starts by grace, but it is finished by works. 
starts by grace, but it gets finished by works. And Paul is going to nail this message to the wall. He is going to annihilate it. And it's an incredible way in which he annihilates this idea because he's going to go back to the Old Testament and say, you're reading the whole thing wrong. Let me show you how to read the Old Testament. And that's what Galatians chapter 3 is all about. So fantastic chapter. Fantastic chapter. So let's stand together. We're going to read the first seven, seven, eight, nine verses of Galatians 3. And then the rest of the chapter we'll be putting on the screen for you. Lots of Bible reading. You're going to want to have your Bible open today. But if you don't have a Bible, most of the text will be up on the screen. Let's look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, let me just say right now, you would not want Paul to be your pastor. He has no problem calling people fools. In fact, in another translation, it says, Oh, idiots of Galatia. <laughs> he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has, been, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was crucified. And then he asks this question. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you or work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, you say, I love this. He's like, you want to read the Old Testament? Let me read the Old Testament for you. Remember what it says about Abraham. Just as Abraham, and this is in quotes in your Bible because he's quoting right out of Genesis chapter 15. Just as Abraham believed God. Somebody say, believed God. He believed God. And because he believed God, that belief was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, this is what we got to know. This is the imperative of the text. I want you to know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Wow, that's a strong word. He's saying it's not about being Jewish. It's about believing God. And he says, they are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, this is out of Genesis 12, in you, all the nations, all the nations, plural, not just the Jewish nation, all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, help me to speak. Help us to listen. It is a privilege to be in your presence and to be with people who love you or who are just starting to explore what Christianity is all about. Father, I pray that you will undo what needs to be undone in our minds so that you can rebuild or build what you need to build in our minds and in our hearts. And Father, as we always pray, help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Here's the premise of my entire message. It's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes. The premise of my entire message is this. Many people know how to become Christians. Few people know how to stay Christians. See, a lot of people know, oh, I know how to become a Christian. You put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then they kind of move on from that and they start doing different things. They start going into different directions and they start tying themselves up with spiritual knots and they don't stay Christians. 
Many of you know people like this. They started out strong and then something got in them and it corrupted what they knew or corrupted their life or made them anxious, fearful, uh, arrogant, prideful, whatever. And all this stuff started coming into them. And though they kept claiming to be Christians, they actually became insufferable people to be around. Uh, I call them Christian jerks. Does anybody here know a few Christian jerks? Like if you don't know one, you might be one. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you right now. Like, you know what I'm saying? And here's what Paul is taking on with the Galatians. He's like, listen, you started this thing by faith and now you're going back to the law. You're going back to the Old Testament. You're doing all these things that you think is gonna make you right with God. And what you are doing is you are not knowing how to stay Christian, how to be formed into the person God wants you to be. You, 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 can't, you can't complete what God starts by faith with your efforts. So he says, look, a lot of you know how to, how to start, but you don't know how to stay. And I love verse three in the New Living Translation. He says, oh, oh f- how foolish can you be? After starting in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own? Say the last two words, everybody. Human effort. Like there's this temptation in all Christians. I got saved. Okay, thanks for getting me in the door, God. Now I'm gonna do really good to make sure you still love me. I'm gonna try really hard to make sure I'm a good church kid, church boy, church man, church father, church wife, whatever. And so that, so that you will be with me and I'm gonna make sure that I finish what you started and God says, it doesn't work like that. And I wanna show you, I'm gonna start this message today on the whiteboard by sharing with you the dangers of human effort to make yourself right with God after you become a Christian. So I want you to flip your notes over. Do me a favor, flip your notes over and draw a big old line right like this, right down the middle. And we're going to talk about the two ways, the two options we have when it comes to our lives and our formation in Christ. On this side, we're going to talk about the wrong way. I call this earth to heaven, earth upward. So draw an arrow pointing up. This is how people live. This is how a lot of Christians, we fall into this trap. And listen, even if you aren't a Christian, I guarantee you that there is some kind of life you are aiming at and this, this procedure also applies to you, even if you're not a Christian, you fall into the same, you, you fall into the same traps. You fall into the same uh, program. So here's, here's the first thing I want you to put at the bottom of this list. Put the F. Put an F. Because F stands for fear. Way down deep under everything else in our lives is fear. Psychologists tell us that fear is the one emotion we're born with. We are born with fear. Babies are born with two instinctive fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. And we develop fears from that point forward and just add to our fears. The question is never, what are you? The question is never, are you a fearful person? The question is always, what do you fear? Because we always have fears. Even if you're not a Christian, you have a fear. Um, We have fears of what our kids are gonna turn out to be. We have fears about the person that we're loving and we're not married to them yet and we're loving them and we're trying to figure out, are they the right one? And we fear, what if I make a bad decision? What if I love them and they don't love me? What if I commit my life to them and then they, they reject me? They walk away from me, they divorce me. Fear, fear, fear. It dominates our lives and it dominates a lot of Christians' lives because we get into the church, we get into the family of God and then we let fears that God might not keep loving us because we're not quite what we should be 
dominate what we are inside of us. And let me just tell you that fear is one of the worst things you can give your life to because fear produces something in you. And I want you to put this on top of fear, put an L, because here's what fear leads to. Fear leads to legalism. Back to fear for a moment. Do you understand that when sin came into the world, the first thing man said to God was, I was afraid. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. God shows up in the garden. Galatians, uh, Genesis chapter 3. God says, where are you? Looks for Adam. Looks for Eve. Finds them. He says, where are you? What are you doing? Adam's first words back to God after sin came into the world, he said these words. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I just imagine how hurtful that was for the creator at that moment. I created this for you. I love you. I am your creator. I want what's best for you. And you're afraid of me? This is what sin does to us. It puts fear into our lives. Deep down inside, you got fear. And fear produces legalism. Here's what I mean. Some of you think, oh, legalism, that's for church people. Nope. See, there is a church legalism. There is a church legalism. It goes like this. It goes, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? Don't go to dances. Don't go to parties. Don't, don't drink alcohol. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't watch that movie. Don't do it. And so we put all this legalism. And really what we're doing is we're creating Christian legalism because we're afraid that God might not accept us. Now listen to me. You don't even have to be a Christian to have legalism. Societies have been creating legalistic ways to be accepted and valued by the society since the dawn of time. How many know there's such a thing as family legalism? Some of you come out of family legalism because here's what family legalism says. Family legalism says, you know, everybody in our house, everybody in our family goes to college. The inherent message is, you're not anybody until you've been to college. Because it's driven by the fear that you're not gonna be educated, your life's not gonna work out right, so you need to get to college if you wanna be somebody. You know what? There's also something called neighborhood legalism. You get into that nice neighborhood and now you understand what happens to you is now you got to maintain your house according to the standards of the neighborhood. Some of you know this. Some of you know this. I remember, and, and Cheryl and I, we don't live in like, a, like one of those private neighborhoods. We don't. We, but we moved into this neighborhood. I'll never forget like two days into the neighborhood, one of, this, one of our friends, who's in the, one of our neighbor friends came to us, and the first thing that they told us was this. Um, she said to me, she said, I'm going to spare you the speech. I said, I said what speech? She said, the guy up there, you see that house? I said, yeah, I see that house. If you do not fertilize your lawn with Scots, he's going to come and tell you, you got to fertilize your lawn. Everybody in this neighborhood fertilizes with Scots. She's like, I'm doing you a favor. I'm sparing you the speech. Just make sure you use Scots. Guess what happened to me? I use Scots. Now, now, now listen, listen, I'm okay with that legalism. I like Scots. I like green lawns. Some legalism is good. Amen. Amen. Right? Right? Like, so, but, but here's the thing, though. The fear is our neighborhood will decline, so we're going to put some laws on the books so that people, not necessarily even on the books, just in our conversation, so that people live up to the expectations of what we want our lives to be. 
This is human up. This is, some of you parents, the reason why you are so strict with your children, the reason why you literally suffocate them in almost every area of their lives is because you are filled with fear that they may ruin their lives by bad choices. So you restrict them in every possible way you can. By the way, this is where controlling churches come from. This is where pastors who preach about everything under the sun is a sin if you enjoy it come from. Because they're afraid. They're afraid that people will ruin their lives, so I gotta put some controls in. This is what was happening in Galatia. Let's go back to the law because God might get mad at us and Paul is trying to demolish this. Now, legalism produces something else. Put an E on top of the L. Here's what legalism produces. Entitlement. Entitlement, or you could put expectations. In other words, now that I've covered my fears with a bunch of laws and do's and what I should do and what I should be and what I'm going to do to control the results that I want from my life, now, because I've been obeying those laws, guess what I think now? Now I think I deserve I've done what you asked me to do. I've done what I've expected of myself. I went to college. Where's my six-figure salary? I got the master's degree. Where's the respect from all of my associates? I chose to marry you. I put a ring on your finger. Why are you not doing what I said you should do if I did that for you? Most marital conflict is built right between the L and the E. I did this, you need to do that. And this is how we become insufferable and demanding to all the people in our lives. This is how you become an insufferable Christian. And by the way, just wanna let you know, I just wanna let you know that the American dream lives right here. You can put a little American flag right there, just to remind you. Because here's how you are raised from birth as an American. If you do this, you will get that. If you get a 4.0, you will get into a good college. If you have extracurricular activities, you will get into a good college. If you get into that good college, you will get a good job. If you get a good job, you will get a great neighborhood. If you get a great neighborhood, you will have an amazing life. And that's what life is all about. And so we start to think, well, I'm entitled. I did what you said. By the way, this is why our country is so jacked up right now. This is why we're so intolerant of each other. This is why we're so hateful. You ever notice the more we talk about tolerance, the less tolerant we become? This is exactly what's happening in America right now. Why so much racial tension? It seems like it's getting worse, not better. Because everybody is getting force-fed this idea, well, you did, or you were, or your ancestors were, or something happened here, and so now you deserve, you deserve, you deserve, and America should, and America should. And I feel like I should just say this. This is not the message. This is just a bonus. But America does not owe you anything. It, it doesn't owe you anything. If you made a contract with America to give you the good life, man, get out of that contract. The good life is not promised to anybody. You know why? You can't control what disease you may get. You can't control what the economy may do. And somebody's going to come along and tell you, I'll fix it. 
I'll do the things necessary so that you can have the good life. That's where America lives. Now, I, you know, it's fine, whatever. You know, I, I'm not here to preach against America. I'm not here to preach against that. I'm just telling you, this is where it lives. And this is where a lot of people live in their families and where they live in their personal life and where they live in their marriages. Well, I did that for you. Why didn't you notice? Well, I've been trying hard, but you obviously aren't paying attention. And we put this entitlement attitude into our own hearts because we think we've done right and it's all driven by our fears. And what happens is entitlement never works out because we rarely get what we think we deserve. And what happens is, you can put an S on the top here, we end up with stress. Worry and stress. Because here's what's happened. Our fears gave birth to laws and procedures and programs which led to entitlement and stuff happened which did not give us what we wanted and we're wondering why life is not working out the way we thought it would work out and now we are stressed. Now we don't have that six-figure income. No, what we have is a six-figure loan from the bank. Stress. By the way, this is what happens with stress. Stress gives birth to decisions, let me ask you a question. Does stress in your life help you make good decisions or bad decisions? Bad decisions. This is where addiction comes from. Well, it didn't work out, so I guess I'll turn to alcohol to numb the pain. Well, my laws, the whole program they sold me when I was a kid, well, I guess I'll go have that affair. I guess I'll go appease the flesh because I'm so stressed. I don't know what to do. It's not working out for me. It's all rooted in fear. Genesis 3.10. This is our problem from birth. And guess what it really is rooted in? Look at this. Self. And the Bible calls this the old self. And it doesn't change you. It'll wreck you. And you don't need that program. And Galatians chapter 3 is written to people who are addicted to this program because what happens is we make bad choices. Bad choices means we are bad people. And guess what? Because we're bad people, we go right back down here to fear again. It's a cycle. And Galatians chapter 3 is trying to call us out of the cycle. And here's what we need. We don't need this cycle. If you're taking notes, you'll see it on your notes. We need not self-transformation. We need gospel formation. Gospel formation. Good news of Jesus Christ forming us into the people that Jesus Christ came to make us be. And so I got three things from Galatians 3, three points from Galatians chapter 3 on how to receive gospel formation. Number one, if you're taking notes, here's number one. God forms your new life in Christ the way he started your new life in Christ, by faith. Friends, the gospel does not just get you into the church and into the family of God. The gospel keeps you in the family of God. 
The message that you heard one day, wherever you were, where you finally heard it, where the lights finally went on and you realized, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. Forgiveness is only found through Jesus. Whenever you heard that message, listen, if you received that message, you got in the door. You got in the door because you heard and you believed that God loves sinners and sent his son to die for sinners. But you do not leave that message behind and move on to human effort. No, you keep telling yourself that God loves sinners because even though you're saved, you're still a sinner. You're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to make a bunch of messes in your life. And you have got to continually preach the gospel to yourself so that you can root yourself in the fact that God didn't save you because you were good. And he certainly isn't going to keep you saved because you are good. The same God who saved you is the same God who keeps you and the same God who completes you. It's by faith. Here's what he says. Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteous. Believed God and he was counted righteous. You understand that Abraham was not a good guy? You understand this, right? I know we sing the songs in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father and I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. What? Right arm, right arm, right? We all sing that in Sunday school. Remember that? Well, Father Abraham wasn't all that great. On two occasions, he sold out his wife to a foreign king and gave him hers, his wife to that king sexually so that he could save his own skin. So we don't sing, Father Abraham pimped his wife and pimped his wife did Father Abraham. We don't sing that. We don't teach the kids that. They'd freak out. What does pimped mean? This is why we don't let 10-year-olds into the service. Amen. <laughs> right? He wasn't that great. What did he do? He believed God. He believed God. In other words, he said, God, I know I'm not what I should be, but God, I know you're going to make me into what I should be. And you got to start saying the same thing to yourself. So he says, no, then, verse 7, that is those who are faith, who are sons of Abraham. If you believe, if you believe, you're a son. And then he says this at the end of that passage, so then those who are of faith are blessed. Somebody say Blessed. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The word blessed here in Greek, great word. Eulogontai. Eulogontai. You meaning good, logos meaning word, good word. That's what the word blessed means in Greek here. It's a good word. Eulogontai. Everybody say it with me. One, two, three. Eulogontai. Now, the literal definition of eulogontai is to congratulate someone. When do we congratulate people? When they start something or when they finish? When they finish. Now, if you look at that word real quick, it's still up on the screen. It looks like an English word that we're all very familiar with. What English word looks like that word? Eulogy. Where do we share eulogies with people? At a funeral. Who do we share the eulogy about at the funeral? The dead person. What's another term for a dead person? Done. He's done. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? What happens in the eulogy? Do we share the good or the bad? The good. Eulogontai. Good, you, logos, word. Good, word. At a funeral, we get up and we start talking about all the good things about that person. Do you ever go to a funeral that, of a person that you didn't really know, but you knew somebody who knew that person? And you go for the person who knew that person. And then somebody gets up and they start talking about the person who's in the box. 
And they just start sharing all the things and they're so cute and they're so funny and they're so smart and they're so witty and they did all these things. And, it was, and you, you leave the funeral saying, I wish I knew them. But what are they doing in the eulogy? They're leaving out all the bad, right? Nobody gets up there and says, you know, he was kind of stingy and he kind of, he actually owes me $500. And I don't know if he was really polite all the time, you know, but we don't want to beat up on the dead. We want to say, hey, we're a good person. I don't know bad. We're trying to justify them. We're trying to justify them by what they did. But we got, in order to justify what they did, by them by what they did, we have to ignore all the bad that they did. And here's what God is saying through Abraham. When you put your faith in Christ, when you put your faith in the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, here's what God does. He pronounces a good word on your life. He tells you right now, I'm committed to completing you. And I started this and I'll finish this through faith in my son, Jesus Christ, because I'm that good. This is why Paul will say, I'm sure of this. I'm sure that he who began will bring a good work in you, will bring to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're taking notes, write it down. In Christ, God has already eulogized you. He's already said, you are good by me because you have placed your faith in my son who bore your sin and took your punishment for your sake so that I could accept you and welcome you into my family. And when God sees you, friend, I got great news for you. He does not see your badness. He does not see your wickedness. He sees his son's righteousness put on you by faith. And he says, you are my beloved child with you I am well pleased you are blessed this totally goes against every natural inclination of our hearts and that's how you know it's from God not from man um, here's what most people think I got a lot of bad but here's what I'm going to do I'm going to undo my bad by doing a lot of good so I'm gonna outdo my bad by doing so much good that my bad is kind of ignored. You know what Paul says about that? He says it in verse 10. He says it to the Galatians. This is what they were doing. For all who rely on the works of the law, doing good, to undo their bad, they are what? Under a, say the word? Curse. Why, Paul? Because it's written in the law. You obviously didn't read it, he's saying. You obviously didn't read it. Right here from Deuteronomy. Cursed is anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law. Keyword all. You want to live by the law? You got to do everything. You want to be justified by the law? You want to do everything. Where do you get that idea, Paul? From the law. From Deuteronomy. He says, it is evident that no one is justified by God before, before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. And then he says this, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's just quoting the law back to people who are basing their acceptance before God on the law. And he says, you're under a curse. Because the law has already disqualified you because you have not done all of the law. You can't undo your bad with your good. By the way, there's another religion in the world that teaches people According to their book, you have to do more good than your bad for God to accept you. Anybody want to guess what religion that is? Islam. Islam teaches that. And I wonder today how many people are Christian in name but functional Muslims trying so hard to undo their bad with their good. 
And don't you realize you're just getting back into this? This is why you get entitled. You start treating people terrible. You get stressed and hateful and start getting intolerant. And you start doing bad things like killing people. Because you got to do more good than your bad. Now, not all Muslims do that. I understand that. Not all Muslims do that. But the extreme leads to that because it's an extreme form of self-made religion that leads to hatefulness. This, by the way, and by the way, I just let you know, Christians are just as guilty. Christians can be jerks. This is where they come from because they're basing their acceptance before God on what they do. And so they start being entitled and they start looking down on other people who can't act like them. And God wants to free you from it, but he's first got to deconstruct it. Deconstruct it. God, does not, God does not form you because of what you do. God forms you because he, you've put his faith, your faith in his work for you. Number two, God forms your new life in Christ through the spirit whom you receive through Christ's death. God forms your new life in Christ through the spirit whom you receive through Christ's death. This is what Paul is going to say about the law. He's going to continue right in this, in this context. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you've got your notes out, circle the next two words. So that. Somebody say those two words with me. One, two, three. So that. I love the so that's in the New Testament. They change your life. Look for the so that's. Christ hanged on a tree. He was crucified so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us. And look at that. There's another so that. So that we got a two for one deal right here. Right? Two for one. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, listen to me very carefully. Jesus did not just die on a cross for your sins. He died on a cross so that you could receive the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. That's what he's saying right here. You receive the Spirit because Jesus took your sins away. God can't dwell where there's sins. We receive the Spirit. And listen, this is the good news about the Spirit. The Spirit is strong enough to start changing your stubborn butt. The Spirit is strong enough to start changing you into the person God wants you to be. And we all know this. I want you to write this down in your notes. Our failures, our failures to change ourselves serve as reminders that we need someone stronger than us to change us. See, you're about to come up on this this year, right now, right about now. We're about two weeks away from what I like to call National Give Up Your New Year's Resolution Day. We're about two weeks away, Right? You're going to go back to eating crap. You're going to go back to doing what you shouldn't have done in the first place. You're going to stop going to the gym. And by the way, I'm thankful. I go to the gym year-round. Love it when you guys, you pretenders, get out of the gym about February 28th. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I can get a machine again. Amen. But, but here's, here's what those failures do. They're teaching you, you need help. You can't do it. And God knows it more than you. He sent Jesus to die for you, friend, so that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, can come into you and start changing you. And he's strong enough to do it. He's strong enough to do it. Please, please, please do not tell me that the Holy Spirit of God is not stronger than your addiction. 
Do not tell me that the Holy Spirit of God is not stronger than your jealousy, lust, envy, and pride. He's stronger. He's more powerful. My Bible tells me greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. My Bible tells me that he started me. He's going to complete me. My Bible tells me if the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in me, he will quicken my mortal body and I'll live the way God wants me to live, not the way I thought I should live. You get the spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it starts to form you. Now, there is a process, right? There's a process. Like, like, think about the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says this, that the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep, and God spoke through the Spirit to the creation, and life came forth. And before there was life, there was chaos and darkness. Let me just say it like this. Before you came to Christ, there was chaos and darkness. And now God, through the Spirit, starts speaking into your word, into your life, into your heart, and he starts to produce life. And the creation account has several days, right? What is God doing? Why did God do it in six days? He could have been like, bam, suckers, let's get this party started, right? He could have done that. No, he didn't. He said day one, day two, day three, day four. Why? He's teaching us not necessarily about creation only. He's teaching us about our new creation in Christ, that it comes day by day by day, and God brings life and fruitfulness and bounty into your life through the process of the Spirit of God that dwells in you. This is how it happens. So you can get out of this mess. Finally, point three, but we're going to read a lot before we get to point three. Please bear with me. Verse 15, to give a human example, it's up on the screen. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows to it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, a covenant is sealed, done, finished. Can't change it. He's talking about the covenant to Abraham. He says, now the promises, the covenant made with Abraham was to his offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural, but offspring, singular, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years after the covenant, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer coming by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay. Let me flip my board and we'll get this unpacked real quick. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying in the second half of Galatians chapter 3. He's saying God starts with Abraham and he gives Abraham a promise. Then what happens? Egypt eventually comes. Slavery. Under Egypt's law. Moses is born. Moses becomes God's mighty deliverer. After the deliverance, then comes the law. And, Mo, and Paul is saying, you, you can't be perfected by the law because the promise was back here and the law does not add to nor take away from the promise so the law, the promise is not built on the law. No, that's reading the Bible wrong. Let me just ask you this question. When they were in slavery to Egypt, why did God raise up Moses and deliver them? Did he look on them and say, man, 
they're so cute. They're such good little slaves. And they're so obedient. Like they sing all the songs, Father Abraham. They're doing all the things. Look at them do the motions. They're so cute. No. He says, I'm going to deliver you. Do you know why? Because I made a promise to this guy. And so the law comes after the deliverance. Friends, you get saved not because you obey. You get saved because there was a promise made to a man way before you were born. And God is always true to his promises. So now we've got a question, though. Why is the law there then in the, fir- in, the, in the first place? And that's what Paul says. Why then the law? Verse 19, here's why. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then he goes, is the law contrary to the promise of God? No. For certainly not. If the law could give a life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. And then verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were under the law, imprisoned. So then the law, and we'll put this up on the screen in the New King James translation. So then, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Let me unpack this for you. Lots of text. Let me unpack it so it's simple. The law comes because there's such a thing as sinfulness after deliverance, and God is trying to teach them that's not how you should live. And so in the law, God provides sacrifices. They call them the law of the sacrifices. There's part of the law. They're all together. And it's a kind of a cool thing about the law. God says, here's what I want you to do. But when you don't do it, I want you to do this. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? Here's the law. I know you're going to break it. Here's what you do when you break it. And so let me ask you a question. After they get the law, what does Israel do for the next 800 years? They fail. Every step of the way. Read your Old Testament prophets. It's a dark day. And so as they fail, they're supposed to look back to the the sacrifices, do the sacrifices, but ultimately all those sacrifices are pointing to one final sacrifice, and that final sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago on a cross on Golgotha when Jesus Christ bore the final punishment for sins. And all those things the law could not do, Christ finally did. Israel was being taught the gospel their entire history. You can't do it. I got good news for you. My son's going to come and do it for you. And then he's going to bear your sins on the cross so that you can be accepted through faith in my son. And he says this in verse 25. But now that faith has come, there is neither slave nor free, neither Greek nor Gentile or Jew or male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, reading real quick. Let me just go through this real quick. I mean then that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the the law. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, notice the words, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let me unpack this timeline for you, Christian. The promise for you was back here to Abraham. We got in slavery to sin. Jesus had not Moses born under Egyptian law. I mean, God had not Moses born under Egyptian law for us. God had Jesus born under the Old Testament law for us. 
and he delivers us. And now we get the law of the Spirit in our lives. And do we still fail? Do we still fail? Sure we do. And every failure is pointing us forward to Jesus. Because the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're still sons. So we have this area right here where we keep failing, but we've got the spirit that won't give up on us. And we've got the finished work of Jesus. And until he comes again, we're going to still struggle with the spirit, with the flesh. We're going to struggle. But guess what? The good news is we're sons. We're daughters adopted into the family, which brings me finally to point three. And then I'm done. I promise you. Point three is God forms your new life in Christ by giving you the freedom to fail along the way. You got the freedom to fail. The law doesn't define you anymore. God, Christ's work defines you. Now, here's what I know about my kids. Here's what I know about my kids. My kids will fail me. They'll do what I told them not to do. They won't do what I tell them to do. But here's here's something you need to know. My kids are free to fail me. If they fail me, it does not make them not my kids. Now, now, please don't tell them that. Can you all just keep that between us? All right? But they're free to fail because their childhood before me is not defined by how well they please me. And I let them have the fail, freedom to fail so that they learn from their mistakes and they grow from them and they become the people I need them and want them to be. And nothing they do removes my love for them. This is why Paul closes this out by saying, you are no longer a slave, you're a son. And if a son, an heir through God. And it's done. So, flipping it back over one more time and unpacking, unpacking this final word. We're saved. Yes. In Christ, we are empowered by the Spirit of God. E. Now we are led by God. F, because we are forever in the family of faith. And this is not bottom-up living. This is top-down living. This is what God came to do for us in Christ Jesus. And we take off the old self so that we can put on the new self, which is created in Christ Jesus to become like God, the original sin, took them away from being like God. And the new creation in Christ makes us like God. And we are set free through the wonderful love of Jesus. And my Bible tells me, nothing in all creation shall separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Isn't this better? Not stressed, saved, not entitled, empowered, not legalistic, led by God, not living in fear. I'm adopted into the family and no one can pluck me from the hand of my father.